This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to the show. Happy Tuesday. You know, I'm happy I'm here with you today, Ryan, because, uh, you know, I wasn't feeling well last night. Thought I wasn't going to make it. Oh, so you thought you did you catch COVID? Like what? What was it? No, that's the thing. You get like a little cold these days, and again, you like it. It freaks you out, right? It's weird. I just got a little like bit of a fever that I broke overnight, and I feel better today. But it was strange. Like wh- where does that come from? I've only been to Rite Aid. What the hell? I mean, Cher, you know, you have been the queen of not social distancing Wait. and things. Um, so <laughs> By the way, I, I think it's, this. it's not shocking to know that you breaking, <laughs> you're breaking a fever at this point at this time. And also, um, California, Los Angeles specifically, mm-hmm. we have moments where you can go out to the grocery store and anything could happen. So just okay, yes. Careful. Let's preface. Um, yeah, I haven't been anywhere actually the past month or so, mm-hmm. except my home mm-hmm. and right aid. Mm-hmm. Twice. I was at Rite Aid twice. And I've seen you, so maybe that's an issue. I've, I've never seen you. I don't know what you're talking about. We've seen each other over Zoom, if that's what you mean. Okay. Okay, <laughs> I, to- I told her that if she she ever tried to put me on blast, I'm going to pretend like I don't know anything she's talking about. Okay, and so Ryan I'm Mitchell. a good liar. <laughs> okay. Really doing it well right now. Coming up on the show, we're going to be looking back at Kobe Bryant's legacy a year after his death. It's it's wild. I can't believe it has been a year. Um, and how the how sports has changed this past year as well. Uh, plus the future of two government agencies falling apart right now, the Postal Service and the transit system. What's going to happen with them? We're going to be getting into that in just a bit. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour the Biden administration is saying it is working to purchase 200 million more shots from Pfizer Moderna. And if that happens, it would be enough supply to reach nearly the whole population by the end of summer. Okay, good news again. It feels good every single day to talk about these updates. I'm telling you. Now, today, the full U.S. Senate was sworn in as jury members of the upcoming impeachment trial against former President Trump. The Senate also heard and rejected a motion from Senator Paul Rand to dismiss the trial. And actually, Mitch McConnell sided with him, but that didn't work. Uh, And the trial is set to take place again the week of February 8th. Now, this week, New York City announced that it was officially recognizing business owned by LGBTQ people as part of their minority and women-owned business enterprise programs. This is really exciting. The decision will allow LGBTQ business owners of all sizes to access billions of dollars in city contracts, contract procurements, and opportunities. 
In addition to accessing priceless resources for historically disadvantaged enterprises in the Big Apple, for more info to apply, go to nglcc.org slash NYC. And if you go follow them on social media, they've been promoting it as well. But that's very good considering a lot of small businesses are having trouble financially. It's a great way to get your business going and sustaining and surviving right now. So good on them. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Now, if you thought we got rid of the Conways, think again. It is time for your tea report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. Kellyanne Conway's 16-year-old daughter, Claudia, we have talked about her here on the show multiple times, claimed on social media recently that her mother took her phone away and tweeted out a topless photo of her daughter. What is happening here? Um, Here she is detailing what happened. Apparently, um, that's real. And so here's what I guess happened. The picture's from months ago. And I'm assuming that when my mom took my phone, anytime she's taken it, because she takes it all the time, she took a picture of that. So that was on her phone. Um, And I guess she accidentally posted it or somebody hacked her. But nobody nobody would ever have any photo like that, ever. Now, this has gotten so far out of hand that the police have opened up an investigation to find out what really happened. Uh, The crazy thing is, because obviously everyone on the internet has been talking about this, uh, Claudia released another video saying she actually believes her mom was hacked. Here she is. Um, I have faith and I know that my mother would never put something like that on the internet as well as me. We would never do that. My mom and I, we fight like mothers and daughters, but we also love like mothers and daughters and I do love her. So what do we think about all of this? Like, is this, is this ever going to stop? Are we, is, you know, Claudia in this kind of physical and verbal abusive relationship with her mom? It's strange. And a lot of people are following this. Yeah. Uh, It feels like a bit of like a faux Kardashian situation in terms of like Kelly and her daughter, Claudia, obviously it's obvious she wants to be a celebrity. She, She likes the attention. Let's be clear. It's just horrible to have her claim that her mom took away her phone, tweeted out a topless photo. I mean, come on, she's a teenager. That's disgusting. Like, there's no reason why her mom would do that. I mean, but apparently she did do it. It was people saw it on her um on her Twitter or something. So it's it just feels oh, strange. Oh, but then she said that her she believes her mom was hacked. Okay. Yeah, so, she yeah. believes Hope, her mom was hacked. There's no way that Kellyanne in her right mind would do that. So yeah, that's really unfortunate, which is why her daughter needs to like check herself because people are going to try to get in her business and try to expose her. And she, she's probably has the content out there to expose, to be honest. See, as we wrap this up, I'm on the other end of this. I think Cl- uh, Claudia needs like actual serious help. Uh, that's what and I meant. I think- no, Claudia needs help. No, yeah. I mean, not in like help and like she needs like something wrong with her. I think there's something going on with that family and, mm-hmm. and it does seem like the way that uh kellyanne is treating her it's a little scary and i think people are catching note of that and i just hope at the end of the day that claudia is in a safe space and we just will find out as this story continues to develop let us know what you think at lgt show of course and of course find more about the story at we are Uh, Next up on the show, more details on Biden's executive action signed today to advance racial equity. That's next with The Washington Post. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Biden is signing executive actions today on housing and justice reforms. The White House says this will follow through on one of Biden's main campaign promises to advance racial equity for Americans who have been underserved and left behind. In a tweet, 
this morning, Biden said the actions will push us closer to that more perfect union we've always strived to be. And joining us for more is political reporter for The Fix at The Washington Post, Eugene Scott. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So can you explain how these reforms advance racial equity? Sure. You know, the focus of uh, these reforms, these executive orders from President Biden, uh, really focused on income inequality, uh, the economy, jobs, market, the marketplace, housing. And, and what he communicated this morning was how uh, systemic racism manifests in our society and in the terms of uh, inequality, in terms of access. So we know from so many data points that people of color, Black people, Latino, Asian American people uh, make, less, make much less uh, than white people, have much less wealth uh, than white people, uh, have, are less likely to own homes. And when they do own homes, the value of those homes uh, is less, are more likely to be unemployed uh, than white people. And so he really got to the fact that uh, racism in our society isn't just about uh, being nice to people and saying nice words, but policy uh, can change how different races experience America. I mean, the perfect union that Ashira mentioned earlier that Biden kind of keeps bringing up. Do you think the administration is kind of being realistic about this journey uh, to build back better? It feels like obviously this is an incredible thing that he's doing and, and really stepping forward and tackling systemic racism. But it seems like there's more to do. There certainly is. I mean, so many of the civil rights groups who work on these issues applauded these steps, but made clear to communicate that this is just a step, um, that the way you improve uh, the quality of life for people of color is by ongoing policy changes, uh, challenging uh, banking and business communities uh, to uh, revisit their hiring practices and their loaning practices and uh, how they go about uh, addressing and developing uh, gaps and, uh, you know, um, a lack of access in communities where people of color uh, predominantly live. And so this isn't like a brush, you know, was swept and that, you know, we have overcome now as much as uh, it's a response to uh, the lack of efforts, one would, you know, honestly say from the Trump administration to respond to these issues in a way that the groups that supported Biden most would have liked. Again, you're hearing from Eugene Scott, political reporter for The Fix at The Washington Post. I want to get into some uh, details of the, the things he mentioned today, reducing incarceration levels while making communities safer. How do they hope to do that? One of the things that Biden was fighting from the day before he even launched his campaign was the role he played in the 1994 crime bill, which mm. helped uh, lead to the mass incarceration complex, which disproportionately incarcerated people of color. And so since then, he has been trying to promise that there have to be other uh, solutions and alternatives to uh, locking people up when they break laws um, and revisiting the laws that are leading to people uh, being uh, locked up. Uh, we know that this does not help communities when people are removed from communities, families are torn apart people are returned to communities eventually without skills to uh, gain employment uh, with all kinds of mental health and physical health challenges and and just it's it's an unpleasant situation for um, an entire community and so 
what he has argued is that if we can uh, provide other solutions uh, to crime, if we can uh, try to teach law enforcement and other groups how to respond to conflict uh, without escalating it, if we can get jobs and provide housing and provide food um, in a lot of these situations, then some of the crimes um, that are being committed won't even be committed. Um, it certainly won't uh, require incarceration. Yeah, let's talk about how, you know, obviously the former president, Donald Trump, routinely referred to uh, COVID-19 as the China virus. But specifically, uh, some of the four actions, uh, the executive actions that Biden signed or will sign um, actually combat xenophobia against Asian-American and Pacific Islanders. Could you go into a little bit more about that and what that actually means? I mean, one thing I don't think um, a lot of people... Uh, we're aware of this happened very early during the pandemic. Um, many Asian Americans were harassed and and even physically attacked um, in some communities because of people who were uneducated and you know even racist in their worldview were blaming these people for bringing uh, the coronavirus to the U.S., which we know uh, was was not true. And so, uh, what what the Biden administration was trying to do was go go as far as to educate uh, people in terms of how best to respond to coronavirus and get accurate information and combat disinformation to these communities um, so that people know how to respond to the pandemic, but also um, have consequences for hate crimes, which we've seen an increase in against people of color um, under the Trump administration and letting people know that this is something that would be taken seriously and not coddled uh, from the White House, which was a real problem before uh, now. That was Eugene Scott, political reporter for The Fix at The Washington Post. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Now coming up, how the Biden administration plans to save the Postal Service. That's next with The Washington Post. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. After a dramatic year, the Postal Service is heading into 2021, looking to figure out new ways to survive. And the only way to do so, it seems, is to innovate and rethink the system completely. Here uh, joining us to offer some options, I don't even know how they're planning to do this, is Jacob Bogage, who works for the Washington Post and covers all of this. He is like knee deep on the U.S. Postal Service. Thanks again for joining us. I think knee deep is selling it short. But... <laughs> You're like immersed. You're very much drowning. Drowning is a better word. Yes. So, Jacob, what is currently being pitched by Congress right now? Because according to a lot of the articles I read, it's just wild, everything that is being thrown out there. So when I think about the Postal Service in Congress, I think about it in three buckets. Uh, The first is the Postal Service's leadership. We have talked a lot about Louis DeJoy. Unlike other uh, officials in the executive branch, there is not a straight line between the president and the postmaster general. He can't just fire him. So uh, the way that you uh, install new people at the Postal Service, not even getting rid of people, just installing people at the Postal Service, is through the Postal Service's Board of Governors. Think of it like a company's board of directors, except they're confirmed by the United States Senate. So with Democrats now in control of the United States Senate, President Biden, still getting used to saying that, can fill four seats on the Board of Governors, which would give Democrats a majority on the Board of Governors uh, and allow them to drive policy in the Postal Service a bit more, up to and including replacing the Postmaster General if so, if they so choose. So uh, that's our first bucket, which kind of involves more of a top-down approach. 
The second bucket, and we have talked about this before as well, is this idea of the retirement health care pre-funding. So the Postal Service has to pay in advance all of the retirement health care expenses for its workforce. So you work with the Postal Service now, you're still very healthy, but you're going to get you know, your health care taken care of after you retire. The Postal Service right now has to set aside money for that, which is something that I don't know of any other government agency or even a private corporation that does that. So on the table is getting rid of that requirement, which would free up a whole lot of money for the Postal Service to be able to throw around to other things. It would also dismantle this mandate year after year after year, it would give them a little more flexibility. The third bucket is kind of everything else. Postal banking, it's being able to sell hunting and fishing licenses, being able to offer other non-postal services. And so that's the third bucket, which would be a lot more new revenue. Why is this so difficult to figure out? Because it just seems like the solution may be easy in some ways, especially if it, if there's possibility for them to add on different services or even this idea of turning them into banks, which I thought was really interesting. Why is it so difficult? What's the confusion here? Why trying to figure out what to do to help this? There's a few reasons why. I would say the first one is I keep talking to you guys because people aren't getting their mail on time. <laughs> right. right. Um, <laughs> so now we want them to go start a bank. Like y'all can't even send the true. mail on time. Do we trust them as a bank? Right. That's so, true. so that's part of the thing. It's not even a matter of trust. It's just a, hey, why don't we help you figure out where your operational deficiencies are right now? Let's not give you more things to worry about. So that's one. Yeah. Two is um, this is a gargantuan federal agency. It comes to all of our homes and businesses six days a week. Anytime you tinker with that causes a lot of upheaval and consternation. And the different constituencies that use the postal services, businesses, folks like banks and insurance companies that have to send things through the mail, you know, suburban households, rural households, urban households, all have different asks out of the Postal Service. And so as soon as you start tinkering, it's very easy to disadvantage one constituency while holding up another. Um, And so it's hard to find broad-based solutions to all those constituencies. The third is it's not really a politically popular thing. It's been in the spotlight more so because of everything that happened last year and the importance, including in the elections. Uh, Senators Kirsten Gillibrand and Bernie Sanders reintroduced the Postal Banking Act. Is that something the Biden administration is looking at or um, privatization? So those are two very different sides of the spectrum. Privatization is something we've had conservatives talk about for a long, long time, um, which whether you like it or not, is understandable, right? Uh, this is uh, a government agency that provides a service to all of our homes that we have learned is not necessarily cost-effective anymore. If you give it to the private sector, maybe they can make it cost-effective while still maintaining some sort of universal service that we all need. Uh, so that's one side of the spectrum. The other side of the spectrum is let's invest. That's postal banking, uh, making financial services more accessible to unbanked and underbanked folks, of which there are a whole lot more than we uh, think about. Again, that was Jacob Bogage from The Washington Post. Thanks so much for being here. A lot to think about. Oh my God, it's a mess. We're not even close to getting started. I'm sure we'll talk soon, guys. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Now coming up on the show, vaccine tourism, what it is and why it's on the rise next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q.
We spoke about vaccine chasers yesterday, and now we have more possibly unethical things happening around vaccines. Vaccine tourism is here. Okay. Yeah, you're super into this. You got you got very interested being like, what is this? This is crazy. Well, yeah, it's intriguing, right? So it all started with this Indian travel agency called Gem Tours and Travels. They announced they are registering customers for an exciting new package, a four-day trip from Mumbai to New York City with a coronavirus shot thrown in for about $2,000. Okay, so this is what's happening right now. The tourism industry is basically using the vaccine to uh, get people to buy trips, to lure them in. And uh, this is from one of the people involved. They said, we are only taking registrations of Indians with a valid 10-year U.S. visa. Well, that makes it better. We're not taking any money, but just collecting data for the moment. And they're proud to have coined the term vaccine terrorism. Oh, no, no, tourism. <laughs> <laughs> Terrorism. Oh my goodness. What a way. What a way to go. I was not expecting that. Okay. So this is so weird. Like I just, I understand people are being like creative and trying to, you know, get their business back Mm -hmm. up and running. And even this idea of connecting the vaccination with, you know, oh, you get to travel again if you do it. It seems like an okay idea, but then also it just this, this just feels weird and gross. Like, oh, the wealthy people who can afford this can just skip ahead in the lines and just be able to do this. And um, whoever has a spare two thousand dollars to sign up for this package, still, I don't know. It just feels like is this going to be regulated? That's the thing. And this is also the question I have. Are they getting it in India? And this comes from their supply. Or are they specifically coming to the U.S. and then finding a place to get it from the U.S., which already has issues and a scarce supply? And so they're taking say, it the from... The U.K. has, like, uh, resources to get the same thing. Uh, yeah. Oh, for, yeah. I mean, uh, there's different countries that have it. But base, that's the big question. Are they traveling to that country to get it from their residents? You're basically taking from the residents of that country. This is where it could get confusing. And we're seeing this in Florida right now, of course, because Governor Ron DeSantis hadn't specified that people getting the vaccine had to actually live in the state. He just said, you're 65 plus. Hey, you can get it. So literally, they had rich Canadians, Brazilians, Venezuelans, as well as people from other states crashing uh, the states, getting shots. And it prompted the state's Surgeon General to sign a public health advisory last week requiring vaccination providers to ensure that every person who gets the shot lives in the state. Um, And that's just shows you know one thing that's happening that's wrong we've already talked about this like all the gaps in the process right now uh so <laughs> it's interesting because in florida there there have been already nearly forty thousand people whose home address was listed as out of state they've been vaccinated there what yeah i mean this whole process is just awful and it, it's just so ridiculous my thing is you know, even going back to the conversation we had yesterday about the vaccine chasers and these like rich white elitist folks are kind of going into these low income neighborhoods and taking advantage of the, the situation. It just feels like there needs to be a better plan of even if like maybe there's a travel s like way of doing it, if they have extra uh, vaccinations, like being able to travel to the nearest, you know, elder care center to be able to give the shot super quickly. I don't know. It just feels like the people are going to take advantage of this because oh, yeah. like we always continue to hear, oh, America is better than this, but they're not. We're seeing time and time and example after example that they're just not. 
I was going to say, do you think the vaccine tourism is unethical? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, it's not yeah. okay. Because it's, it's, it's yeah. literally only... Uh, helping people who can afford to be able to I mean, do that. That's that's a thing. Uh, so yeah, there should be restrictions on that. And Florida, there's a lot of people that go there for the winter. They live there. You need to protect each other. So that's a bit of a flip flop there. Um, my thoughts, but definitely I'm happy I mean, they signed that recently. Let's say Florida is not even protecting itself. So do they really need to be protected? <laughs> Well, uh, coming up on the show, a new push from U.S. Catholic bishops to support LGBT youth. Their announcement next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, we're looking at Kobe Bryant's legacy a year after his death and the future of mass transit, which has hit new lows during the pandemic. But first, let's get into some What's Trending This Hour. Congressional Democrats have introduced a bill to raise federal minimum wage to $15 over five years. Senator Ron Johnson, who is a Republican, says he supports increasing the federal minimum wage. But he says $15 an hour would kill jobs and harm lower income people. But if we could kind of reset that base to a reasonable level where it doesn't destroy jobs and then index it to inflation, that's something that's something I can support. I don't think a 15-hour minimum wage, though, I think that would destroy way too many jobs and it'd have the exact opposite effect. Uh, you'd harm people with the lower economic spectrum uh, as opposed to help them. I mean, that's an interesting way to look at it. Harming lower-income folks by making sure they're paid more. Um, it's obviously nuanced. If people are paid more, the standard of living should potentially stay the same. The worry is that it would also go up, right, and be harder for people for companies to uh, hire employees and pay for them. Um, but since it's not like they can afford that right now, most people can afford the standard of living. The hope would be that nothing changes, but people just get paid more so they can keep up with life. Right. So I hope they're taking all of that into account as they um, look at this, but definitely it needs to be done. It's about time. And the Senate confirmed Antony Blinken to be President Biden's Secretary of State. He is the fourth in line of succession to the presidency and is tasked with leading the effort to bring the U.S. back to the global stage and rebuild alliances that suffered under the Trump administration. Wow, he has a lot of work ahead. He is the 71st Secretary of State and the fourth member of Biden's cabinet to be confirmed. And finally, a group of eight U.S. Catholic bishops released a statement in support of LGBTQ plus people. Uh, saying that God created you, God loves you, and God is on your side. The group, which includes a cardinal and an archbishop, worked together with the Tyler Clementi Foundation, which fights against LGBTQ plus bullying in schools, work, and faith communities, to release this statement. And part of it said the Catholic Church values the God-given dignity of all human life. And we take this opportunity to say to our LGBT friends, especially young people, that we stand with you and oppose any form of violence, bullying, or harassment directed at you. So is this a game changer for the Catholic Church? I mean, we'll see. I'm never going to give just because they make one step in this in a good direction. Never going to just give them all the cookies in the world. But I think right now we can celebrate this movement. But they have a lot to really unpack in the Catholic Church, especially about making a space that's inclusive and diverse. And also, you know, the other scandalous things that are always happening there as well. Yeah, hold those folks accountable. That's for sure. And uh, that was What's Trending This Hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so after recently coming out as strange, news hits that Elliot Page just filed from divorce, uh, filed for divorce from his wife, Emma Portner. Uh, it's time for your <laughs> T-Report. Those pop culture stories trending right 
now. So Elliot apparently filed for a contested divorce uh, today, actually, in Manhattan. Uh, they released a joint statement that said this, after much thought and careful consideration, we have made the difficult decision to divorce following our separation last summer. We have the utmost respect for each other and remain close friends. Um, the, voice, uh, the divorce comes just three years after the pair married in January 2018. I mean, another celebrity couple who couldn't stand up against COVID breakup season. What do you think, Shira? Oh, it's sad to see folks break up. But, you know, yeah. uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I didn't even know they were together or Elliot had a partner. Really? I guess they haven't been together for a bit. Well, they have. I mean, since 2018. No. And I think they were together a little bit longer than that, too. But they got married in 2018. But um, I, I'm interested. And this is just me gossiping. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I'm interested in knowing if, you know, Elliot's transition had anything yeah, to do with the that. divorce. Um, because oftentimes, you know, some things, realizations can come into play. And I think it's as long as they're handling it as respectfully as possible and and making sure that Elliot feels comfortable as well and feels reaffirmed in their identity. Um, yeah, but I do wonder how much that plays into it. But also, if people ain't meant to be together, then don't force it, honey. I, I, I believe in divorce. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, people change over time. So including you're going through a transition, you know, uh, literally uh, of your life and who you are, even though um, he, he, Elliot was always he. If, if that's what he felt he was, you know, in, in, even though he just came out to the public. Uh, but, you know, with our life right now, also in transition with COVID, it's a lot to go through and it, it takes a, or puts a toll on a relationship. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, that's your T report. Let us know what you think at LGT show on social. And of course, check out all these stories that I cover in the T report at we Okay. Now coming up, the pandemic could devastate mass transit in the U.S. And not for the reason you think. More on that next with Politico's Tanya Snyder. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. The transit system was already seeing a decrease in ridership before the pandemic, but found itself at new lows as COVID-19 hit, down 62% in the third quarter of 2020. So will it ever be able to rebound? Well, joining us is Tanya Snyder, who covers transportation for Politico. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So how urgent of an issue is this? I mean, are we going to see public transit just disappear forever after this? Well, we can't because our cities are going to have to bounce back from COVID and our cities need public transit in order to bounce back from COVID. Um, there's a short-term problem and a long-term, let's say, challenge. The short-term problem is, as you said, ridership is, has plummeted and for good reason. Now is not a time for us to be packed together in enclosed uh, indoor spaces. But the government needs to make sure that, that the transit systems don't shut down and that service still exists for essential workers so that right. they can get to their essential jobs, keeping the fabric of society together in the middle of a national global emergency. So, um, so that needs to happen right now. And, and there have been some... Uh, federal relief payments to transit agencies to keep them afloat, but they need a lot more. 
Uh, well, I think what's interesting, I, and I want to know Pete Buttigieg, right? Because isn't he like uh, now kind of the uh, tra- well, he's going to be like he's a nominee for the transportation secretary. How much is that? Is this on his plate of things to do? Because honestly, it seems like it might have a lot to do with him. Right. So in terms of uh, short term relief, that's mostly Congress. Okay. Because the transportation secretary can't uh, spend money uh, and certainly not the billions of dollars that we're talking about. Um, But in the long run, uh, the transportation secretary can make decisions about how to spend money and deciding to spend money. And certainly um, Joe Biden and Democrats in the House and Senate, who are now in control of those chambers, um, all want to spend more money on transit. All right. Again, we're talking to Tanya Snyder, who covers transportation for Politico. I guess with this knowledge that this needs to be done, but there's not enough people riding to continue getting the money. Then also the reality is there's a work is changing, right? A lot of people are not going to have to, even after the pandemic, go to work in the way they did. Right. So how are they looking to market themselves differently? And, and you talked about this a bit in your piece. Yeah. And that's a long term challenge that I was beginning to reference Yeah, what happens when we can all work from home? I mean, you know, maybe you still go to the office a couple times a week, but then transit agencies need three or four people to fill that seat that they used to fill with one person. Um, And maybe if you don't need to go to the office that often, maybe you move far away. And honestly, transit works best in, in cities with some population density, and especially when there are clusters of where people live and where people work. We've been facing suburban sprawl that's been a challenge for transit for decades already, but it could get worse. I mean, I think that all of us that live in a city have been craving a little more space and a little more backyard in the last 10 and a half months. And cheaper uh, rent or uh, cheaper housing. I mean, that's a big issue. At the same time, I feel like uh, it's it's good for the environment to, one, if you are going to live farther away, you want to be able to use public transportation. You want the, uh, the accessibility instead of driving. So it's like it is environmentally friendly in all ways to be able to move out of the city, right? But then also use transit. So how do you find the balance? Right. And it's not just environmental, although the, the climate emergency is the great, you know, potentially the gravest emergency that we face. Um, public transit addresses so many of our goals in society in terms of equity um, and just having better cities so that aren't, you know, choked with congestion and traffic. Um, So absolutely, public transit is essential for so many of the things that we say that we want in our world. Um, Living out in the mountains is also something that we might want when we aren't tied to uh, commuting to a job every day, but it's hard to serve um, spread out communities with low population density with transit. Are there states already working? Like before COVID even happened, they were already kind of on the the route or the journey of handling the situation? Yeah, there have been some cities mostly that have focused on um, redesigning their bus networks. Um, some in the in the age of COVID have focused on, you know, who are, who is still commuting to work and who is not, you know, white collar workers not so much going to work right now, but essential workers are. And so how do you make sure that you're serving them? Maybe it's not um, a lot of peak hours at rush hour, but maybe it's making sure that you're not cutting late night service, for example. 
So, I, yeah. um, and, and some transit agencies have also been really focusing on trying to make sure that they're not only serving work trips, that they're not only helping commuters get to and from work, but that they're also helping people get to the grocery store and go out for a night out and get to the baseball game and things like that. Well, yeah, it seems like tourism is going to be a big part of it, too. I mean, Amtrak right now, um, a big thing is, is tourism, not just about getting to work. Right, exactly. I mean, people on the airlines are suffering through this as well. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tanya Snyder, for joining us for this. Uh, Tanya covers transportation for Politico. It was a real treat to be with you. Thanks so much. Coming up on the show, we look at Kobe Bryant's life and how sports has changed a year after his death. We'll be back in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. It's been a year since we lost NBA star Kobe Bryant to a horrific helicopter crash with his daughter and seven others on board. And now joining us is Alex Reamer, deputy manager of Outsports. As we look back at his life and legacy a year later, thanks so much for joining us again. Always a pleasure to be with you guys. Happy 2021. I know this is the first time you've been back this year. And it's really strange because this tragedy of 2020 or the the entire tragedy of the year really began with this. So what comes up for you as we look back at that day? That's a that's a good way to put it. Uh, It's amazing. It's like six weeks before the first lockdowns were initiated. Um, uh, You know, a lot of things come to mind. You think of Kobe. I think the main thing is how influential and instrumental he really was in the lives of many of the modern NBA superstars with LeBron James being chief among them. I mean, LeBron is somebody who now, of course, plays with the Lakers. Uh, He really took that seriously, taking on the mantle from Kobe Bryant. And on the court last year, of course, the Lakers start to finish. We're the best team in the NBA. And LeBron James off the court did incredible things from raising awareness to racial justice causes like Breonna Taylor talked about her and other victims of police brutality after games to, of course, the work he did with his more than a vote campaign throughout the election. Um, And he's somebody who really talks about Kobe being, again, one of the most influential figures in his life. So I don't think you could have LeBron right now without Kobe. And uh, that's how I think you see Kobe's legacy most being carried on today. Yeah, Vanessa Bryant earlier this month, uh, she put out a statement like basically asking the media to cover it in uh, in a way that felt feels appropriate and not like, you know, everyone's in their business. Do you think that that happened? Do you think that the media has covered uh, remembering Kobe in a way that is tasteful? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I've I've seen a lot of heartfelt remembrances today. There's a lot of reverence for Kobe in the sports media. Um, I'm not really as attuned to the TMZ world. So maybe they did something, you know, the helicopter crash one year later, something like that. But uh, everything on my timeline has been very respectful of his legacy as a player. And again, what he meant to uh, the overall culture of the game. Yeah, and again, now a lot of us follow Vanessa Bryant, his wife, and it seems like our connection to him through his wife. Is that something as a sports journalist, are you constantly keeping up with him through his family on social media? Yeah, and the most one of the more interesting things about Kobe is just his evolution personally from where he was in the early 2000s. Of course, there was the, the rape accusation as well. Yeah. And, you know, it really shows that somebody can change, you know, without going too deep into yeah. things, it shows that people people can evolve. And what I mean by that is, 
uh, he was such a champion for women's basketball. His girls played women's basketball and he went to all their games and was a huge, huge champion for equality in that way. And we know how underrepresented women are in the sports field. And now you look at, especially this year, how the NBA and WNBA really acted in concert with each other when you're talking about raising awareness for, again, racial justice causes, helping to elect Raphael Warnock to the Georgia at the Senate as well. Um, you really saw a mixing of the leagues like we've never and a mixing of the genders pro athletes like we've never seen before. And you think back to Kobe and what a champion he was for women's basketball and women's sports later in life. So, yeah, I think his family, his daughters and his wife uh, certainly tell a big part of his legacy. Yeah. Again, we're hearing from Alex Reamer, deputy manager of Outsports, as we look <laughs> back at Kobe Bryant, his life and a year later after after his death. And I can't believe it's already been a year. Actually, I know time has gone by so fast. Um, but you kind of touched on this. How have you seen the, the sports world really change? Right. And I love kind of the the talking about the the mixture of like just all of the leagues coming in one space and really doing something that was just different do you think that is here to stay do you think that was just a moment this that was just a moment of history that we would see in that moment but do you think we'll continue to kind of see that moving forward I think so. Uh, last week, I spoke with Natasha Cloud, who's a guard for the Washington Mystics in the WNBA, and she's phenomenal. She's a biracial, bisexual, bisexual woman, and she's not, a, and she's very outspoken and not afraid at all of, to express her mind. And she told me that you know what really spoke to her this summer, and she opted out of the WNBA season actually to spend her summer organizing, etc. Um, she said that the synergy of the leagues has really stuck out to her, and she thinks in the past that the leagues and professional athletes have been kept apart on purpose because as we know, there is strength in numbers. And I think one of the most powerful things you saw in sports in all of 2020 were the league-wide player boycotts of games and protests of games in the aftermath of the Jacob Blake shooting. Those were athletes saying, hey, there is no product without us. So if there is one big takeaway from the last year, it's that athletes have really found their voices like never before and uh, yeah, I think we'll only see that continue going forward. I mean, the key will be keeping the pressure up now, of course, but mm -hmm. you know. Oh, I was gonna ask, uh, do you see um, anyone honoring Kobe's life in a new way, whether it be today or moving forward? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think again, to go back to LeBron James, I think LeBron James is the mantle, it had took the mantle from Kobe and really takes that seriously. So I think that's where you begin and end, but uh, I'm sure you'll see young guys growing up because Kobe was such an instrument. You know, if you're a t young 20-something basketball player, of course you grew up watching and idolizing Kobe Bryant. Uh, Jason Tatum is a star player for the Celtics. He trained with Kobe, uh, you know, just two years ago, uh, you know, just last year even. So, um, yeah, all the young guys coming through their leagues now, you know, they used to be of the Jordan generation. Uh, now they really are of the, the Kobe yeah. generation. Okay, Alex Reamer, again, Deputy Manager of Outsports. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Coming up on the show, another teenager is speaking out after discovering his father was involved in the Capitol riots. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We spoke about this the other week, a daughter who basically called out her mom for being part of the Capitol insurrection. Well, now another teenager, an 18-year-old Jackson, is speaking out after telling the FBI about his father's involvement in the Capitol riots. The story's pretty wild. Uh, here's what he had to say. It, it was pretty surreal to hear him talk as if this was something that is going to save our family. 
So that interview was done with Good Morning America. This kid, a Jackson, Ryan, is in hiding right now, right? He basically is separated from his entire family because he decided to tell the FBI he did the right thing. But now uh, his family is very mad about this, as you can imagine. And his father has been arrested and faces federal charges. No, it's not even just they're mad at him. His father said that traitors get shot. He threatened his life. Well, yeah, I meant like his his mom, who's now not in prison, but like the rest of the family. Who but, cares? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, his life. That's why he's in hiding. It's not because of a squabble or him snitching on his daddy. It's because his life is in danger because his daddy is crazy enough to say, if you if you tell on me, you will die. I mean, yes. this is insane to know that these supporters or these cult followers of Trump are so willing to kill their own kids for this mess that Trump doesn't even care about. He's in Florida not giving an F about him. He's opening up the former office of the uh, the former president, the office of the former president or whatever he's doing that's <laughs> creating chaos and havoc in Florida. Yeah, his father said to quote, if you turn me in, you're a traitor and you know what happens to traitors. Traitors get shot. And when they asked him if he was worried his dad was going to shoot him, he actually said, no, which is surprising, but he said his dad, he very much felt like he was being manipulated. He had gone off the deep end with these uh, extremist groups. And, and this is another unfortunate situation of that. Uh, and it is really wild, the brainwashing that uh, has happened. And uh, thankfully, there are these kids who aren't scared uh, enough to speak out about it and i just can't imagine what's gonna be like growing up now um separated from their families a lot of these kids uh and what they're gonna do with their lives you know moving forward yeah i guess it's it is, it's triggering for a lot of the kids but um they're doing the right thing and yeah, they'll always course. be they'll i think they'll always be fine and unfortunately they always probably knew that their parents were like this you you live with these people you understand it, and you know what's right from wrong and um and someone like his father does need to be in jail and it's unfortunate that he won't have to he won't be able to grow up with his his family um in that way right and so i do hope that he get, moves past that and gets through that in the best way possible but I mean, I'm sorry. Lock his daddy up. But I, I'm hoping these folks who are speaking out are also being protected right now because for those who haven't been arrested and who are part of these groups, I think it would be scary to know, like, if they are tracking down these uh, these family members, right, for speaking out and uh, basically helping the authorities find those who are involved. I mean, that's that's the scary part about this as well. It implicates a lot of people. And like the crazy thing is, and he was talking about how his dad was there and texting him and so proud of what he was doing and just like no sense of responsibility or remorse also is just uh, really but, troublesome. Uh, are you shocked? I feel like I yeah, always no. ask you that. I, are you shocked? Yeah, I, I'm not. It feels surreal. But in the end, this is our reality. Now coming up, why Grindr has just been fined $11 million in court. That story next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q.
Coming up on the show, details on the scams hitting your texts and what to avoid, plus the executive orders that Biden signed today on racial equity. They are definitely doing the work. That is in a bit with The Washington Post. Uh, but first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki outlined President Biden's first call with Russian President Putin. Okay. Oh. Uh, yeah, and included concerns about the solar winds hack. Russian bounties on American military and the poisoning and the arrest of opposition leader Alexei Navalny, among many other things. His intention was also to make clear that the United States will act firmly in defense of our national interests in response to malign actions by Russia. Like, I wonder how that conversation went, Ryan, like just, you know, a whole list of all the problematic things that are going down. Like, are you going to do anything about this, Putin? No, well, I Wanna work with us. I hope that Joe Biden actually um, stuck it to him in the way that he it needs to be, because you know, him and uh, Putin and Trump were very, very close, you know, buddies. And so I'm hoping that Joe Biden let him know that there's a new sheriff in town, and what oh, yeah. he is used to won't be happening anymore. Yeah, and you heard that at the end of this response uh, from the press secretary that they will protect American citizens um, and the country against what Russia and Putin is doing. Like they have no tolerance for it, basically, is what she said. Uh, now, <laughs> I want to smoke what Florida is smoking, said one Twitter user, as Florida announced their bid to host the 2021 Summer Olympics if Tokyo backs out due to COVID. Now, this is just strange because one, we know that um, we're just not in a place in this country. Like the summer of 2021 to host the Olympics, I, you know, we can't even deal with people here in this country in COVID, let alone everyone else from around the world coming in. And I thought the right? Olympics was supposed to be in Los Angeles next. Uh, it was going to be in Tokyo, uh, the Summer Olympics. I think it's next year that it's yeah, yeah. Well, um, and someone on Twitter, actually, the recount said Japan population, 126 million. Florida population, 21 million. Japan COVID cases, 372,000. Florida COVID cases, 1.7 million. Japan COVID deaths, 5,297. Florida COVID deaths, 25,445. So you can see, like, if Japan doesn't feel comfortable hosting the Olympics there, like, it would be questionable uh, with Florida, considering how they've dealt with everything. And it's yeah, too, I mean, you gave a lot of math, and I was, just, I, I was just like, I get it. You but. just get it. Yeah, you get it. <laughs> now let's move on to Grinder. Does that pique your interest? No. Never. Uh, the Nor the Norwegian Data Protection Authority announced today that the gay dating app would be fined 100 million Norwegian dollars. That's basically 11.6 million dollars U.S. for illegally selling users personal private information to third party advertisers. The fine represents an estimated 10 percent of the company's European revenue and an estimated third of their net profits. The company has had many issues, as we know, around privacy and user data in the past. In 2018, they apologized for sharing users' HIV status with third-party companies. That same year, a site was launched to help expose major security flaws in the app, too. And Grindr was sold for over $600 million last year. 
That was what's trending this hour, what's happening in entertainment news, right? Okay, so Lindsay Lohan is getting a lot of praise for some sweet advice that she gave to an LGBTQ fan. But to be honest, I'm on the fence. Let's talk about it. It's time for your T-Report, those pop culture stories that are trending right now. So she surprised a young fan this week with a personal message about the power of living authentically. Over the weekend, a TikTok username, Alana, told her followers that she planned to ask Lohan to come out to her parents for her through a cameo video, which we all know what cameo is, but just in case if you don't, cameo is a site that allows fans to request personalized videos from their favorite celebrities. Well, Lindsay Lohan went on ahead and did it, and here's what she said to the wonderful Alana. And I think that you should do it yourself. I think that coming from you, you'll feel a lot of power and strength, and it's important that you are who you truly are, and that you love yourself, and you can live by that and tell your parents that, So I love what she had to say, right? I think it's very cute. But people were like praising Lindsay Lohan like she didn't get paid for that cameo and she wasn't giving just complete great customer service. That's honestly what it is. So I'm not sure really what I'm praising Lindsay Lohan for, to be quite honest. Well, there's two things. So yes, I I get it. She was doing it based on being paid to do it. At the same time, she could have had a response that didn't resonate. But the fact is the response resonated. Well, Lindsay has, I think Lindsay has kind of dabbled in the queer world. I don't know specifically what her... Her, you know, uh, identity or is, and I'm not really worried about it. I get Um, it. Yeah, but I, I think she was always given that type of response. But yeah, I think this is cute. Um, She's always been a person who's kind of been an outspoken advocate. Um, And yeah, I think this is kind of an early yes queen in a way. But I just, you know, I just love to think about like, did she really deserve it? Who knows? Who knows if Lindsay deserves his praise? Let her have a little win. Little 2021. <laughs> well, let us know what you think at LGT Show everywhere. Of course, on social media. And we are channelq.com is where you can find these stories. And that's your tea report. Now coming up on the show, have you gotten a weird text about a package delivery or your Netflix? How to avoid text scams surging? That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. The new Channel Q. This has happened to me and I'm sure a lot of you have gotten these weird texts lately saying you have a delivery. Well, they're probably a scam, so don't click the link. And it seems like it's only going to get worse before it gets better. According to the security firm Proofpoint, mobile phishing attempts increased by more than 300% in the third quarter of 2020 compared to the second. And joining us right now is Richard Gargan, a spokesperson for Bin Verified. Thanks for being here. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So where do these texts come from? Like, isn't it illegal? Is there one company that's just doing all of this right now? There's many companies. It's really interesting when we looked into this. I mean, Americans send 2.5 trillion text messages per year. And so they just have to send out um, a small fraction of that for it to become a huge problem. So, yeah, it's not just one company. They have a, a sophisticated operation, often based offshore, and that allows them to kind of like escape the law and get around all of the things that like the FCC and carriers are trying to do to to stop these text messages. It's it's definitely um, many people doing this involved in this scam. So if they're kind of going around the law, how are they being regulated? Because it just seems like it's just a free kind of out of bounds type of thing right now. 
Well, that's a really interesting topic because obviously we've, we've just had a new um, FCC commissioner, um, Jessica Rosen Walsall. And so she's Biden's new commissioner. And she just tweeted, um, it's actually a couple of years ago now when the FCC was looking into regulating this. And she tweeted that she didn't like um, regulating the carriers more. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, that, I thought that was quite interesting. Like, obviously, I think it's, it's really tied up with the uh, net neutrality political debate and that kind of thing. But essentially, right now, text messages are regulated as an information service. And that means the FCC can use call analytics and it can use text message analytics to filter out spam. Uh, the, the, the other side of that argument, though, is that um, that means you're giving your carrier a lot of power to read your texts, analyze your calls. Now, of course, they're going to be using software to do this, but it's, it's interesting when um, the new FCC commissioner tweeted that. It was a couple of years ago now, but um, it's going to be interesting to see how it develops. But isn't that like email? I mean, we're used to spam and email, so why wouldn't that be in text as more people... What, like emails filtered that out? I mean, and, and now I feel like now celebrities are getting text messages. I feel like text is becoming like email. So wouldn't they do something about that? I hope so, because I, I agree with you. Emails are so ubiquitous and we expect a, a spam folder to exist. And that means that Gmail has to read your emails. And obviously it's done by an algorithm. Um, there is other things that companies can do. They can... Um, require phone companies to implement like caller ID authentication um, and they can also just like make it make all of the complaint data more available for people to access um, that's what our service does is we our, our bin verified spam call complaint monitor people can go on there uh, log the calls that they've received and usually once you log a call like mm-hmm. there'll be a whole conversation of people underneath say oh yeah that was this, a student loan scam that was a, a delivery scam and um, so I, th- I think that's something um, that carriers or the FCC could do as well. Again we're talking to Richard Gargan a spokesperson for Bin Verified uh, which you just talked a bit about, which is interesting. So what are the signs here? If someone is not, you know, they're they're like, I don't know how I'm getting scammed, but they are getting scammed in one of these text messages. What should they not be clicking on? What should they be looking out for? The scammers are really preying on people with a lack of time. And so, yeah, I sure I could see that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I got a delivery. Oh, I forgot to do something on my Netflix account. No, Shira's Facebook has been hacked before, and they literally just filled it with porn. Remember when that oh, happened? Because she t- she literally clicked on some link, and I'm just like, how are you not paying attention to that? So talk to the old people like Shira. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, this is the thing. Where we've all been there. We've all not had time. But, like, you know, they are preying on older Americans as well, like seniors. So... You know, people who are receiving a text message and, and it, it's usually the big trend in 2020 was delivery text scams. So this text comes up, it's got a tracking code. It says that you've missed your delivery or that you're, you need to claim a parcel or, or a package. And so you receive the text, you click it, and then you get like a, a FedEx logo and it looks really real. And so it's quite easy for people to... to to fall for this scam, um, what, once once you're in this kind of flow of just clicking on things, 
um, you know, and then you see the logo, you can easily get fooled. So yeah, obviously the first thing to do is don't click links that are very vague. None of these text messages are specific. They're not going to say like what what the what the um, package was or anything like that. So uh, tr try and be careful with links. And when you click on the link, just look at what website it's taking you to because often, well, all of the time, it's not going to be the official USPS website or the official FedEx website. It's going to be something else that maybe sounds or looks similar, but it actually isn't FedEx. Mm. Or do what I do. I text them back to see if they answer me. Like, what are you talking about? And then there's nothing that comes back. Are you looking back. for a pen pal? What is happening here? I just say, like, is this real? Can you, like, what's going on? Anyway, just saying. Okay, Richard Gargan, thank you so much again for being here. You're welcome. My pleasure. And you can check out his company. He works for Bin Verified. It's online and in the App Store. There you That's go. Correct. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We're wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. On Sunday, June 6th, Adam Lambert, on behalf of his Feel Something Foundation, is teaming up with Pride Live to curate a celebration of the fourth annual Stonewall Day. They just announced this um, as part of the events happening this year. Wow, it seems like pretty early, but good on them. <laughs> January, a Pride announcement. We're starting early. I like it. Well, Pride365, that's what Channel yes. Q lives by. That's what I'm talking about. Thanks for the reminder, Ryan. Now, for the day, the Queen Frontman is bringing together a diverse and talented lineup of artists as well as special guests to celebrate the LGBTQ plus community's resilience and a look forward to where we still have to go. Now, if you're wondering, Lambert launched the Feel Something Foundation in early 2019 as a nonprofit that aims to ensure support is given to the myriad of issues and continue to disproportionately affect the LGBTQ plus community. And they actually support organizations and charities that fight for the rights of all members of the community and have missions uh, directly focused on focused on impacting the LGBTQ plus community in areas of education and the arts, homelessness, suicide prevention, and mental health. So good on him. Good on them for doing this. Yaz Queen, Adam Lambert. We got to have him on our show this year. I know. Time. I really, really, really want Adam on. I'm obsessed with him. I know. He's, he's an easy person to be obsessed with. And he's come a long way. And I love Queen. So that's all I'm saying. So that's our Yaz Queen <laughs> of the like, day. Queen. Yeah. Queen, because he's now in the I, queen. I, I know. Okay. I was just confused at first. I was like, yeah, what? I got it. Um, but yes, queen. If you want to nominate someone for a yes queen of the day, just slide into our DMs at LGT Show. Now coming up on tomorrow's show, what is an executive order and why don't presidents use them all the time? Because it seems like that would, you know, be something I would use if I was president, if I could use it. Yeah, and we keep talking about it, and Biden keeps signing on stuff, and it's just like, if this is a, a thing, then why not do it all the time? Why even have a Congress, right? Uh, plus, this Republican thinks Trump was too pro-gay, so God punished him by making Biden president. Yikes. More on that on tomorrow's show. <laughs> 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern, live right here on Channel Q. And of course, what's trending this hour, every hour. If you miss any of our shows or interviews, just catch up on our podcast. Go to the radio.com app and search Let's Go There or where podcasts are available. It's so easy to find us. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. And stick around for Love Line with Dr. Chris right after this. Have a great night. Bye, y'all.